Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to this July 31st edition of the World Soccer Talk podcast. I'm your host, Nipun Chopra. Thanks for joining us. Today, we will be briefly discussing, previewing the Olympics, and then spending a majority of the show talking about the big transfer and news stories from around the world. Joining me to do that is the one and only Chris Hennage. Chris, how have you been? Not bad, not bad at all. The, the time off, in inverted commas, from football seems to have come and gone really quickly, and, and now we're, we're gearing back up for everything with the Olympics that we'll talk Talk about and then being shipping MLS. It's it is. It's never ending. It seems, but I mean that in a good way. I promise. Yeah, it really is never ending. And you were here covering uh, Copa and, and covering MLS and all that stuff. And we are one week from Community Shield and then two weeks from the start of the Premier League. Time has flown, and I for one am excited about the Premier League. There's been a lot of fun, and we will talk about a lot of those news stories. So, but Chris, let's start with the Olympic stuff. Olympics start this coming week. Uh, and we won't be discussing gymnastics, although that's Chris's favorite. Uh, Chris, are you a uneven bars kind of guy or a, a vault? Formal horse. Oh, yeah. Okay, that's what Which I was also my nickname in high school. <laughs> uh, I can see it. I can see why. It's a, it's a facial <laughs> facial structure, Chris. <laughs> so uh, let's talk about Olympic soccer, though, Chris. Let's uh, uh, really briefly discuss the men's tournament. Uh, there are going to be 16 teams which will be in four groups. There'll be, uh, and then the top two from each group will be getting into the quarterfinals with the finals being played in about two weeks on August 11th. And the teams, Chris, are from Africa. We have Nigeria, Algeria, and South Africa. From Asia, Japan, South Korea, and Iraq. From Europe, Sweden, Denmark, Germany, Portugal. From the Caribbean, it's Mexico and Honduras. From, Oce- from the Oceania, basically Australia region, it's Fiji Islands. And uh, from South America... Argentina and Colombia. So we had a question on Twitter, uh, Chris, from uh, Sunny SoCal Rob twenty five, and he asked: Besides the obvious Brazil, who we know because Neymar is playing, which teams are you looking forward to seeing the most in the Olympics? So, fire away, Chris. Sweden. When I was when I was going through the the squads and everything, because obviously, the, as with any tournament, the rosters are a little bit prone to change. Sweden were the surprise winners of the U21 championships, the European championships, the year, I want to say last summer. Hmm. Um, and their whole path to that tournament in general was utterly bizarre, like 4-1 down to France, managed to salvage it in the, the last seconds. So I'm curious to see how far the 
the squad has come or what remains of that squad, I should say, right. in terms of this and whether they can maybe repeat that again and, and be a dark horse, if you will. Are there are there specific players that you think are very promising on that Sweden team? Uh, Quaison, Quaison, you'll have to excuse my pronunciation, it's not the best. Um, he, for me, was a star at that time. He was a big kind of rangy midfielder um, that's at Palermo now in Italy. Hmm. I just like him. I like a lot of what he represents. Normally with a big guy like that, you, you think he's all about the physical side and, and athleticism and that's all he brings. There's a genuine quality to him in the way that he plays football that I really do quite like. Um, and I think if they can harness that, that's always a good start. You're always looking, I think, with the Olympics as well to the overage players and seeing what they can do. Because you can only pick right. three. Mm-hmm. You really need to choose them quite wisely. And, and going through some of the squads, as I'm sure we will, I've been kind of surprised by the selections that some nations have made that I personally wouldn't have tipped them to be the overage choices. I mean, Honduras is probably a good example. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, sticking with the player really quickly, who would you describe him as uh, similar to? Are we talking about someone like a Pogba, like a Patrick Vieira? Is he a holding midfielder? Is he an attacking midfielder? What sort of I would is say Steven and Zonzi. Oh, is, okay. When you asked me that question there, legendary. Steven and Zonzi. So, so yeah, you're talking about in. a legendary player. <laughs> <laughs> that was who jumped into to my head, at least. Um, High praise, okay. Well, he's a Europa League winner now. Let's, yeah, that's let true. Let us not forget. That's true. Um, which is more than, than the Liverpool squad can say. Um, so I think that's a fair comparison because, again, I always feel it's a talent fair if I say he is like Pogba, he is like mm. Vieira. Because then people will have that image in their head when they right. watch him. And if he doesn't perform sort of that well, then it's it's unfair. Whereas I think if you can try and find a little more realistic comparison, mm-hmm. that's him. I mean, he's no, he's no world beater, of course, but I think he could be uh, exactly the kind of player that can at least take this Swedish team forward in the Olympics. For me, Chris, I'm looking forward to seeing this Argentina team. There are a couple of players on there that I really want to watch. Lucas Romero from Cruzeiro. Lanzini, who you and I talked about a lot a lot last year, playing at West Ham. Jonathan Caleri at Sao Paulo. And the big thing, Chris, for me is I'm very interested in how the next batch of Argentinian youngsters comes through. Because they have seen some terrific players in this current generation. And as we've seen, sometimes what happens is when you have that level of quality in the first in the in the main national team, the younger players kind of struggle to break through. So there'll be a couple of players that will uh, that will uh, be the stars of this tournament from Argentina. But I wonder if they'll be able to make the next step up to the Argentinian main team. And I think that's why I'll be interested in watching uh, this Argentinian team. Have, have you had a chance to uh, look at any of these players before? Well, Caleri is a, is a, a good one. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, his club situation is a curious one. He's actually owned by Deportivo Maldonado. And mm. for those who who don't know, that is seen as a, what's the way I can put this without getting sued, a <laughs> club that helps teams with third-party ownership issues. Gotcha. Um, and so while he is playing for Sao Paulo, officially he is owned by Deportivo Maldonado, who, if I remember correctly, some of their famous, in inverted commas, alumni, I want to say Hulk went through there. Hmm. Um, so there's been a few different players that have, have kind of crossed through their training team and never actually played for them. Um, I think in terms of this squad, though, I quite like the looks of uh, Giovanni Lo Celso. Um, he's quite good. And then also Giovanni Simeone, who, mm. as you may fully expect, is the son of Diego. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was reports at the weekend saying that 
he will sign for Genoa once this competition is all done and dusted. Uh, he won't have any passport issues like that. He was born in Madrid. So, is he yeah. is he a player much like his dad? Defensive midfielder, kills people for a living type player? <laughs> he is not. He's a forward. He's, okay. uh, he's far more attack-minded. He's, he was on loan at Banfield, I want to say, last year mm. and had a fairly decent return. Just, just over one in three was what he's got. Um, but he's been incredibly important for the, the U20s at, at international level. Um, and he he could be, I mean, this is the thing, you you do kind of look at this tournament, I don't know if you agree, as, as a little bit of a proving ground for the younger players because there's such an emphasis on right. you have to have this kind of squad dynamic of them being a certain age and overage players. I do find that it, it can actually be very good for those younger players. I remember uh, Ji Dong Wan of, of Sunday, he had a very good... Uh, 2012 London Olympics, mm-hmm. and that kind of boosted his profile a good amount. So yeah, it's it's always interesting in that sense. And, and personally, I'm I'm someone that quite quite enjoys watching the next generation come through and and maybe trying to spot them early if you can. Sticking with that, Chris, are there another couple of players outside of Argentina and Sweden that you're looking forward to watching during the Olympics? Any team? Um, it's a good question. I think Portugal actually. Um, because again, we've just seen them win the Euros, and this is a Renato Sanchez-less Portugal side. Right. So you could argue there is a tiny modicum of pressure on them because mm-hmm. of what they've just done. Also, I think Mexico. Um, mm-hmm. to to put my MLS hat on for a second, Kubo Torres will be there for Mexico, mm-hmm. and he's done next to nothing for Houston Dynamo. Um, as low as I am to to really be overly critical of players. He just hasn't performed uh, when he's been on the field. And so whether the Olympics can serve as something of a, a confidence boost for him or something, I'm not too sure. Either way, the, there'll be a little bit of pressure on that Mexico team to, to try and recapture the performance of, of four years ago, even though it's a, a largely different squad. Yeah, another couple of players that I'm excited to watch. One is Gabby Gall. Uh, Gabe, our friend Gabe loves this player. Uh, he's already scored a couple of goals for the national team. One of them in Copa America against Haiti uh, plays for Santos. And then also Gabriel Jesus, the other Gabriel in the uh, in the uh, Brazil team, Palmeiras forward, and another one of the next Neymar, quote-unquote, along with Gabigol. Uh, and then Angel Correa is another player that uh, we didn't mention when we talked about Argentina. And this player, uh, I don't know if you had a chance to watch him a little bit last year, Matias Ginter, I think, is the next Subotic. I know that's not very high praise, but I don't want to sell him <laughs> very highly either. He plays at Dortmund, uh, can play both centre-back, right-back. He's a player I think can uh, do well for the German uh, national U23 team. Mm. No, I, I, agree, I agree with that. I've, I'd love to say I'd seen loads of Ginter, but I personally haven't. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have heard good things. Dave, uh, Skorker Dave, yeah. gives him quite a, a decent write-up whenever I speak to him about uh, him and equally again if you're a fan of him I'm inclined to think he's probably a good player because you seem to have quite a good eye for these kind of things hmm. yeah absolutely all right so before we get to the uh, transfer stories uh chris really quickly i want to tell our listeners about some good news and this actually might interest you as well chris because you love yourself some mls we have something really exciting news to share about our sponsor SeatGeek, which is that SeatGeek is now the official ticketing partner of major league soccer SeatGeek is working with the league and its teams to introduce a new ticket buying experience that will make it easier for you to buy, sell, share, and access tickets to MLS matches. SeatGeek is the first place I go to look for tickets to any game or concert. Uh, In fact, just 
this week, I looked for tickets for one of my favorite bands called Beach House. Chris, have you ever heard of Beach House, the band? I definitely haven't, I must admit. You have to check them out. They're really good. So Beach House is one of my favorite bands, uh, kind of my favorite genre of music, alternative-ish. And they'll be in Indianapolis on August 16th. And the first place I went to find tickets for Beach House was on SeatGeek. And the reason for that is SeatGeek does all the price comparison for you by searching multiple ticket sites and ensuring that you get the best possible deal. SeatGeek does all the work and you save time and money. And best of all, our World Soccer Talk listeners get a $20 rebate off their first SeatGeek purchase. To get your $20 rebate on tickets, you have to follow four steps. Step one, download the SeatGeek app. Step two, you go to the settings tab and click add a promo code. Step three, you enter promo code WSTPOD. And step four, SeatGeek will send you $20 after you've made your first ticket purchase. So go ahead, download the SeatGeek app and enter promo code WSTPOD today. Chris, getting back to the madness of transfer uh, of the transfer world right now, we have to start with the biggest transfer news that has uh basically been <laughs> ubiquitous ever since uh, before the the European Championships even, which is Paul Pogba going back to Manchester United. You and I have not really had a chance to talk about this news story at all. So let's, let's begin with a very simple question, which is, do you think Paul Pogba should be going back to Manchester United, in your opinion? It's a very good question. I mean, I've written something for for Yahoo that, that hasn't dropped yet and won't drop until stroke if he completes his move saying that actually I'm inclined to think that he had to go away to come back in that sense hmm. because I don't know if he develops into the same player exactly. if he stays at Manchester United with the instability um, if you kind of read some of the interviews with him and, and talk to him about the influence of the likes of Buffon and, and Bonucci and Chiellini those older players I mean he said himself when he saw Italy go out in the Euros last month, it hurt him a lot. Um, it hurt him to see his teammates cry because he knows, I think, himself, they've had a huge influence on him, developing mm-hmm. him, not just technically, but but also tactically and, and mentally and, and ways that maybe we don't always look at or consider. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think in that sense, yes, it's a huge fee to pay and, and I can see why it unsettles a lot of people. I also think that he's been to possibly the best finishing school that you could have gone to in the last three or four years. I can't think of many teams that have beaten Juventus in terms of their ability to develop players forward, but then also be incredibly shrewd in the market. So Mm -hmm. you'll pay a huge fee, but I think you'll get a player that realistically that club has searched for from pretty much the moment Yaya Toure touched down and showed exactly what that kind of player could do in the Premier League. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I think uh, any Man United supporter will tell you that one of the players, uh, this is true for me, I guess I shouldn't say any, but one player that I always looked at and wished he was at United was Yaya Toure. And uh, I definitely feel that Pogba can have that level of performance. The, his ability to, uh, I mean, it's. I think this gets used a lot, but it's actually true for uh, for Paul Pogba, which is that he can do anything on that football pitch. He can pass well, he can take players on one-on-one just 
go past players as if they don't exist. He can defend, although that's not his best characteristic. He can tackle, he can head the ball, he can shoot. He can literally do anything on that pitch. And it puts him in a bracket in a, at a level that very few players are in the world of football. And I think that's the price. That is why the price is high as high it is. The second reason, of course, Chris, is that United doesn't have Champions League football. So it, it was always going to take uh, being able to outbid another club to get Paul Pogba to United. Because I think from Paul Pogba's perspective, it makes a lot more sense to go to Real Madrid. Uh, but when Real Madrid isn't matching that bid, at least yet, uh, Paul Pogba will probably end up at Manchester United. And and I take it you'd be be happy with that? Because that's, that's the other thing as well. It is a huge amount of money. I'll be happy with that. Uh, so So I've had this conversation with so many people. So I think we need to separate the conversation about the bid, uh, the, the amount of money in two ways. If the conversation is about, is the amount of money being offered for Paul Pogba crazy from an outsider's perspective? I think the answer to that is unequivocally yes, because the amount of good you can do with a hundred million pounds is insane. Well, the amount you can do good, you can do with 10 million pounds is insane. So f- for clubs to be Engaging each other with this amount of money is obscene and absurd. I totally agree with that. But the amount that Paul Pogba is being, within the context of world football, the amount of money that Paul Pogba is being bought by Manchester United for makes complete sense to me within the context of world football. Three years ago, Gareth Bale fetched a fee that is not very different from what Paul Pogba is being paid for. Uh, and arguably, Paul Pogba's ceiling is higher than Gareth Bale's. And secondly, when you look at United's turnover, they will still be, quote-unquote, in the black, far in the black after they're done with their transfer season. So within the context of world football, I think it makes sense for Manchester United to sign Paul Pogba, with the caveat, as I mentioned, that it is still an insane amount of money. What about you? I think, I think for me, it has to spell a change in the way that Manchester United's academy is run. Mm. Um, I did a video a few years ago for uh, a Man United fan channel and they said I could almost kind of riff on any topic I wanted and I talked about the class of 92 and how actually Mm. I thought the next class of 92 had already escaped in the form of Pogba, Morrison uh, and Matt Molodali Mm. now Morrison is it's it's funny I was was listening to an interview with Nicky Butt just before we came on and he talked about how actually the idea that Man United wasn't producing was a myth, and you look at Marcus Rashford as a good example. I think Rashford was a bit of a unicorn. I'm not so much sure that he was put into the first team as thrown into the swimming pool and people realised he could swim. And granted, I've just said that Pogba's been to a fantastic finishing school in Juventus. There is still a part of me that thinks that Man United should have been that perfect finishing Mm -hmm. school for him. Mm -hmm. And I think that's my concern is that what once felt like a well-tended, well-maintained path from first team to uh, academy for Manchester United, it doesn't feel like that at present. If anything, it feels like a very big jump that doesn't have as enough support going alongside it to make it easy for these players. Um, because it is already a huge jump, and I think the, the softer you can make the landing, the better. I totally agree with you. I think the... We've talked about this on this podcast many times, and I've talked about it on ULF many times. I think since Sir Alex left, United tried to recreate that 
Sir Alex Mould with David Moyes, who I still think is a terrific manager. Uh, it didn't work for a variety of reasons. Uh, and since then, United has gone the Galacticos route rather than Sir Alex route. Uh, and we've spent a lot of money on on players um, in the last three transfer season uh, transfer windows, and I think it's going to continue like that because the the, the way uh, it's being sold by top Reds quote unquote uh, on Twitter uh, that is Man United supporters is that if United has five hundred million uh, if United is getting five hundred million from sponsorships what exactly are they supposed to do with that money if not buy players uh, and that hurts the youth policy because I don't think under Mourinho we will see promotion of uh, to players like Axel Twanzebi or Timothy Fosumensa, uh, who was rumored for a little while to be leaving the club, and hopefully he isn't. Uh, we already know Will Keane is probably going to leave the club. Adnan Yanuzai is probably going to leave the club. Uh, and uh, James Wilson, who was once highly rated, is probably going to leave the club. Um, and... I'm forgetting Tyler Blackett also comes to mind. So all these players that were once highly rated were supposed to be the next class of 92, quote unquote, are going to leave the club under Mourinho. And it just goes to serve that things have changed uh, at Manchester United. And I don't think that's going to uh, revert back to the old way anytime soon, unfortunately. But coming back to Pogba, on the pitch, we uh, we all we all we know he's a marketing brand and and will do uh, you know get United all kinds of um, more eyes than they've had before, which is saying something. Uh, but on the on on the pitch itself, one of the questions I have is: uh, Do you see uh, when you look at Manchester United's transfer policy this summer? And we'll discuss this in detail next week when we preview the whole season. But Short question, do you see the signing of Paul Pogba, Mkhitaryan, Ibrahimovic and Bailly as players that will get Manchester United back into the title race? Yes. Okay, yeah, I feel the same way too. And I think it helps with Mourinho there as well. So let's let's move to talking about a player that Mourinho actually let go of. That is Romelu Lokaku. Romelu Lokaku is being rumored as the next 60, 70 million slash 70 million signing for Chelsea. Uh, Chelsea have, by all purposes, uh, all reported purposes, made a bid for one of those amounts um, to Everton. Currently, it's unclear if it has been accepted. So, uh, Chris, talk to me about the possibility of Lukaku going back to Chelsea and also the possibility of Costa leaving Chelsea. Well, I think Costa potentially leaving makes a little bit of sense. Um, Chelsea in general feels like a very difficult place for, for strikers to actually go. Yeah, um, yeah. let's go through the list. Shevchenko, Torres, Adrian mm, Mutu. Uh, Crespo probably Crespo. in there a little bit. It, it doesn't... It's never struck me as a club that has a real safety for strikers in that sense. I never mm-hmm. feel like they're trusted for that long. Um even Drogba, as as long as and illustrious as his career was at Stamford Bridge, it came after some quite notable um, uncertainty and doubt about his ability and his talent. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the Lukaku situation again, I mean, he wasn't trusted the first time by Mourinho and was, was let go. So to then bring him back, you'd have to say, well, maybe that is an admission of a mistake in the same way that Pogba is an admission of a mistake. Right. And they've done that with Matic as well. Definitely. I I think the thing with Costa going, it does kind of make sense because I think with him and his, his style of play and this almost bully-like attitude that he plays with, 
it it works to a degree in Spain, but I think he ha- he felt obligated almost to overreg it and to do it too much um, in England to try and compensate for what is a physical league. Mm-hmm. So for him to have that physical advantage, it had to be ramped up a few notches, um, and that too often got him in trouble with the FA and and just again made him an easy target for bookings and and the referee's attention. And I think same with a number of players in that position. Um, the likes of Catamol, I would say Joy Barton's another good one. The second you get a reputation in English football, you are waiting to pick up a yellow card. Yeah, um, and it is so easy to shake it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so difficult to shake it, rather, not easy to shake it. And that means that you become a little bit of a liability to your team, especially if you keep playing the way that you've kind of become famous for. Absolutely. I, I agree with that. I, I think Suarez is another example of that. So the question I guess I have at this point is with, with Lukaku, when I look at the, his style of play and his, his uh, um, I guess his style of play and probably what Antonio Conte wants from his team. We obviously don't exactly know how he's going to set up Chelsea, but based on what he did at Juventus, based on what he did with the Italian national team, can you see Lukaku fitting in that system? Because I don't think I do. And I think that's my concern for, for Lukaku going back to Chelsea, especially if, if Costa leaves. Well, you've got to think that he's being signed with Conte's blessing. I'd mm-hmm. be, I think the days of, of Shevchenko rocking up because Roman Abramovich fancies it are long gone. Mm. Um, at least I would like to think so, especially if I'm a Chelsea fan. Mm-hmm. Because really that never works. The idea of the owner picking players, it's just it's a recipe like for disaster. vanity buys, basically. Exactly. Um, I think... I think it'll be interesting if we assume that Conte will, will go with two attackers. Um, it will be interesting to see how Lukaku develops in that because he has largely, if not exclusively, played as a single attacker for most of his career. And I think you could form a strong argument that a second forward or a partner for him should open more space and should mm-hmm. facilitate more opportunities. So actually, it should be quite good for him, huh. um, all things considered. The actual style of play... I think it will be quick in the transition and fluid enough that actually it might benefit him. I'm I'm not so sure if he is the kind of player who works in those slow, soft build-ups. There's obviously a lot of talk about his first touch and how that's a bit of a letdown for a player of that calibre um, or a player that is you know demanding that kind of transfer fee. Mm. Consequently, I think actually a much more direct, and I'm curious, careful to say direct and not long, style of player works for him best. And I think... Actually, a move to Chelsea could be quite good for him in his career at this point because he, he does. He seems desperate to move. Um, and I think that's probably tough for Everton fans to take. But you'll make an absolute killing on him in terms of what you've invested relative to, to what you'll receive for him. Yeah, there's no doubt that they will get at least three times that transfer. Maybe, well, maybe not three. At least two times the transfer fee uh, that they paid for him, getting him from uh, Chelsea. It will be interesting, though, because... I, I wonder about the, the way he'll fit into that system. I think if they can retain Costa and keep Lukaku, I think that's obviously the best of both worlds. But as you pointed out, um, what Costa did last season in terms of his on-field behavior uh, and arguably his off-field behavior, because um, ostensibly he was one of the players involved in um, in in letting well leading to Mourinho leaving the club, if if you believe. Uh, the three rat theory, which is uh, Fabregas, uh, Hazard, and Costa being the third. So with the, with that context, I think Lukaku will be a good signing overall. But it'll be interesting how Conte manages to fit him in. 
Before we move on to the next player we're going to discuss, uh, Chris, let's let's talk about an overarching question that was posed to us from Twitter from Matt at DudeAbides81. And he asks, is it better to sign an entirely above average team or three to four players and eight average players? Because the reason he brings it up is because, um, you know, there's there's the famous adage, which is that you're only as good as your weakest player. So should you be worrying about your weakest player more than the fact that you need to spend $100 million on a Paul Pogba, for example? I think that's a, a good question. I think, and we talked a little bit like about this uh, before we hit record, mm-hmm. MLS is actually quite a good case study for this because mm-hmm. you see teams, let's take the two New York teams, for example, who approach the, the squad construction with those two very polarizing ends in the sense that NYCFC go out and buy three hugely talented players and then use whatever they've got left to fill up the squad, whereas New York Red Bulls try to spread it evenly across the entirety of the cap. It's so, it is a very difficult question to answer because I think if you look at last season using MLS again, the Portland Timbers, I would say, did not spend huge on three big players. They actually spread it around. But then if you go historically, LA Galaxy have tended to buy those bigger names and then basically eke out more from the lesser-known names and get more production than you would expect from those on the lower salaries. My gut tells me do it whereby you spread the talent around. I think the only shortcoming with that is when you need a little bit of a game-changer in a difficult moment, you don't have it. Whereas, let's say if I'm New York City FC, I can call on Lampard or Villa mm-hmm. to do something out of nothing. What, what do you think? Do you have any strong opinions? I do. I think I think it, it depends on the manager. I think some managers are able to handle that one or two exceptional world-class players, whereas other managers don't want to do that. So let's let's look at Mourinho. Mourinho has had some fallouts with the likes of Casillas in the past. Um, but as a general rule of thumb, he manages those egos pretty well. So he can manage a 100 million odd player and know that he'll be able to find a tactical system that's either built around that player or incorporates that player. But then let's look at someone like Antonio Conte or, or Jurgen Klopp is a perfect example of this. I think what Klopp is doing at Liverpool is magnificent. I don't think he wants to. I don't think he wants to sign a player like Pogba. I, I genuinely believe that if he was offered a player like Pogba, he'd probably say no. Not only for the price, but also because of the fact that that sort of player is not the player, the system he wants. He wants the players to believe that that what he's doing at the club is more, is bigger than those players. He wants a system that is bigger than those players. Pogba will always be bigger than any system, regardless of what Mourinho says. For the rest of the season, every game where United plays poorly, we will analyze Paul Pogba. Every game that France struggled in, including the final, we analyze Paul Pogba because he is that big of a, of an ego, that he's big, that big of a celebrity now. So when you have, so I guess the point is, it depends on the the manager. If the manager is able to handle that game changer, as as you often put it very eloquently, Chris then I think he'll go for that. But if he wants, if he has a very specific system, a counter-attacking system or a defensive system in the case of Antonio Conte, he doesn't want a Paul Pogba. What about you? What do you think about that? I actually think that's a, a wonderful point that I didn't even really consider is that actually you need to as much think about the, the manager <clears throat> at your disposal as much as you do the, the players because I think someone like Bruce Arena or... Mm. Let's say Harry Redknapp, for example, 
would well, not two, be good. Two, two very interesting examples. <laughs> I'm very curious what you're about to say here. Um, I don't think they'd be as good with a team that required on the parts to come together and form something. Give those guys three very talented, maybe mercurial-type players, I think you get some kind of production out of them. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look at you know Bale, Modric, and Spurs, I think that was kind of what was going on with, with Redknapp when he was finding right. success. It was the ability of someone like Bale to really change a game mm-hmm. and, and shift up a few gears in a way that few players really can. Um, I'm not so sold on whether he does that successfully with a team that is constructed in, I'm trying to think of a Premier example to be honest maybe someone like Everton around the same time I, mm. I can't remember I mean this is pre-Lukaku I think I can't remember that Everton side having any real standout performers um Marrow yeah, and Fellaini maybe, maybe standout Fellaini May. Pinar maybe at some in some games yeah that's about I mean it. it's it's difficult because then again I don't think there are many uh Premier League teams that build themselves that way I actually think they they tend to side on the idea of buying a few stars and seeing mm-hmm. what you can fill the rest of the squad out with yeah, I, I think you're right about that. I think there are certain managers who are – who the, the reason they're world-class managers is because they're able to not only build a tactical system, but they're also able to placate egos. So someone like Sir Alex, Carlo Ancelotti, uh, maybe Mourinho, Pep Guardiola. The reason they are elite-level managers is because they're able to balance those two things. The reason Brendan Rodgers struggled at Liverpool uh, after he made all those signings is because he wanted a particular tactical system – and then he bought a bunch of players whose egos he couldn't handle, even though the you know arguably the biggest ego in Suarez had left. But the the point I'm trying to make is that it, the it's not always the same answer for every team, and I think uh, that that would be my answer to Matt. And it's a terrific question, I think, because mm. uh, it's becoming more and more apparent that football is changing. So uh, and and with the with a game that is as disparate as it is now, I think the answer is dependent, it is contextual. And I think the context comes from the style of the team, the style of the owner, the style of the manager, and the players themselves. So, yeah, I'm sure we'll get into that even in more detail as we go along through the season. Uh, another, uh, This is not a transfer rumor, uh, Chris. This is a, is, a, is a new story that I think is uh, important to discuss, which is the suspension of Sacco. So uh, for our listeners who might not know, Sacco was sent home from Liverpool's tour in uh, in, in the United States, uh, and it's because of uh, disciplinary issues. Uh, and I have, uh, on the ULF podcast, we talk about Sacco fairly often. Um, he, he, he divides opinion, I think, even within Liverpool fans. Uh, certain times he's exceptional, like uh, in, in some of the Europea, as the Europa League games, uh, especially the one, the first leg against Dortmund, where he was incredibly good but then he makes some very rash mistakes and uh and and right now he's had some behavioral issues so if you're Klopp right now put yourself in Klopp's shoes Chris uh and what would you do with the Sako conundrum uh is is his future at Liverpool the the thing is he was he almost played it down a little bit in the quarter Mm -hmm. that I read um and yet I remember I think it was LFC India posted a video, probably accidentally, it was probably scheduled, about 30 minutes after the news broke via James Pearce um, of the squad at Alcatraz. And right. Klopp having a little bit of a dig at Sacco mm-hmm. about him being late and it seeming quite cordial and quite humorous. Yeah. Um, I think 
at the minute, the, the future of Sarko at Liverpool depends entirely on Sarko and how he handles this situation in the sense that he can either now isolate himself from the squad, shut himself off and consider Klopp the problem, or he can actually look inside and say, I shouldn't have been late, you know, I shouldn't be these kind of things, I should be taking this more seriously. Because I think that's what ultimately Klopp wants. I don't think he's needlessly making an example of uh, Mamadou Sarko. What I think he's doing is he's making a conscious effort to set a standard for the squad mm. so that they all understand what is expected of them. Right. And the second that you start to leave anyone out, whether it's because they're fun or they're a key member of the group, you destroy any idea of rules and structure. And I think structure is very important to Klopp and his, his system as a whole. Yeah, I agree. I, I think it goes back to the previous conversation. Uh, he's he's making an example of Sako to make sure that the, all the players, uh, even if, if they're one of the uh, you know more um, flashy players in terms of Coutinho or Sturridge, all of the players understand that their place is under under doubt because for Klopp, the 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 style and and his his authority is beyond contestation. And and if you uh, if you come up against that, there's only going to be one winner, and that's Klopp. Um, so yeah, that's a good point. I wonder. But here's the other thing with Sako, right, Chris? Because this is not the first time this has happened with Sako. We remember, uh, I think it was under the Rogers era. You you can correct me, but uh, Sako was on his way out of the club. He left the training ground, uh, and uh, it was pretty much uh, made clear at that point that uh, his future was away from Liverpool. So mm-hmm. Sako's a, a good player and he's a good defender, and Liverpool need him. But uh, it's going to be interesting how th- how this plays out with Sako because I don't think it's as uh, and as you pointed out I I heard that interview uh, it was with uh, um, for, uh, Gar- Gab Marcotti on ESPN where he kind of played down uh, Sako's future but I don't think we've seen the end of the Sako issue. No, I don't think we have. Um, and I think I think it requires someone to come in with a decent offer as well for him to leave. Right. That's the other Good thing. Point. As, as much point. as you might want to sell him. You also then need to convince someone to take a pop on a, a player who is perceived to have attitude problems. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, this was something reportedly that was an issue under Rogers too. So it's not something that has just stemmed up recently. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, you, I think you always find a buyer for that kind of player. It's just whether it even comes close to what Liverpool want to do. Because actually, if you look at the business they've done outgoing this summer, they've actually stuck really strongly to their, their fees and their figures and their demands. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I can't see them folding for a player that they could recoup the majority of the fee, if not a little bit more on, in Mamadou Sarko. Yeah. So let's go back to transfer talk. Uh, Chris, one of the one of the stories that comes up every year uh, is uh, Arsenal's transfer policy. Uh, they have signed Granit Xhaka, but they've also let go of three midfielders, um, to three holding midfielders in Flamini, um at all. Uh, Rosicki is one of them as well. So I'm just wondering, um, with, with the, the, currently they're being linked to Lacazette, Icardi and Mares, And those are players that are attacking players. Uh, and I wonder if, if, first of all, do you think they'll get one of those players? And if they do, aren't they already stacked in those positions? They are. Um, I, th- I think, I think they needed a centre-back, definitely. Um, yeah, and Mustafi of Valencia being available for the price he is available. I think it's about twenty-five million pounds. In the current climate, everything considered, that is exactly the kind of no-brainer deal that right. uh, Arsenal. Should twenty-five need. is the new ten. 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, which is what I said to my boss when I asked for a salary. Right? <laughs> um, so I, th- I think, as I said, it makes so much sense. And yet this is not the first time we've said that about a player potentially moving to Arsenal. An attacker, I think, actually a wide attacker, someone like Mares, they could probably do with someone like that. I don't really know, apart from Sanchez, how much production Arsenal has from, from out wide. Mm. I could be you know, being totally deceived here by just what I'm saying. But I, I don't think they have a, a huge production from out wide. So getting someone like Mares would be ideal. It would need to come with a centre-back as well, though. And that's before we even discuss the Canoe, uh, the, the Giroud conundrum. Um, <laughs> the Karoud conundrum. I know, right? Um, <laughs> the Higuain thing, again, I think, honestly, he would have just been a more pricey version of Giroud in the sense that mm. I like Higuain and what he offers. I also watched him fluff a really easy chance at MetLife Stadium and cost Argentina what would have been now three titles in three years that they've lost because he's fluffed a big chance. Um, granted, he wasn't the only one that underperformed, but he had the the opportunity in all three finals to put the game away and didn't do it. Um, yep. So I think, again, that's something that needs to be considered. I just think as well, in, in general... Arsenal really struggle with just the vibe around the club. The, the, a lot of Arsenal fans, or a good portion that I see, seem so quick to panic um, because they don't see themselves moving in the same way other big clubs do. Hmm. And yet, really, they're always consistently there. Um, you know, it's very rare you see Arsenal not in the top four. In fact, I don't think they've been anything but outside the top four. Mm-hmm. Uh, or inside the top four, excuse me, while Wenger's been there. So, right. again, it seems like a, a lot of bluster for not much actual uh, consequence. I mean, the thing to me is that along with a central defender, I think they need another holding midfielder because right now there's only Granit Xhaka uh, really who can play that position consistently. And he needs to learn the league. As you mentioned, their issue is the striker. So I, I find... Uh, of course, they, they do have good backup, right? They they have they have uh, Danny Welbeck, who's injured again. His his uh, issues with his knee, which long precede Arsenal, uh, these these showed up when he was a fourteen year old at Man United. Those continue. Um, they've been able to successfully, quote unquote, play Walcott up top in some games, so that's an option. But when Giroud is your favorite striker, uh, is your main striker, uh, and you don't have a player that can put the ball in the net consistently. That's a constant problem uh, holding midfielder. So so it's crazy to me that they're constantly being linked strongly with these players who I think they are, whether or not the creativity is there, which your point is kind of valid, that uh, the, the players uh, might not create as much as you'd want them to. I still look at the number of players in those positions. You have Walcott, Oxlade-Chamberlain, Joel Campbell, uh, Mesut Ozil, um, uh, Alexis Sanchez, who you mentioned, and I'm sure I'm forgetting, I don't know how many other players. So the fact that they're stacked in those positions makes me wish that they would try to move for those other areas, which have been an issue for their, for like the last 10 years. Since Gilberto Silva left, Arsenal have been begging for a destructive, not a destructive, a destroying midfielder, one can that one that can win tackles. They were constantly linked to Morgan Schneiderlin, who they should have signed. They should have signed Victor Wanyama. I've been saying this on the podcast for so long, who was available for 13 million apparently. So the fact that they let go of these players that they should sign is troubling to me as, as a as a neutral. Yeah, I can I can see why. Again, I think. 
I think this could be Wenger's last season. And mm. again, you know, that's that sounds like saying I think this bird's about to fly looking mm. at it on a perch because there's a chance you'll be right. I just would struggle to see him staying after this current campaign unless something drastic happens. Um, there's part of me still a little bit surprised he's there given that Leicester won the league. But in general, you, you could argue that the fact that there's not wholesale change there is a good thing and that will actually improve them because they should, in theory, have a better understanding than their opposition. It was supposed to mean a lot last year and it didn't. Um, It's just, it's a very confusing club, Arsenal. I think there's a lot more complexity there than than even I can truly comprehend. And I say that as someone who's paid to do it for a living. It's it's very (laughs) difficult. I would love to sit down and and really talk to some Arsenal fans about it at some point because I think I would come away learning a lot more than when I sat down. Mm -hmm. I think that's well said. Um, and they're out there, trust me, on Twitter. You can talk to a lot of Arsenal fans on Twitter. Um, All right, let's also talk about Man City now, Chris, Uh, being linked very strongly with Leroy Sané, who I really enjoyed watching when I watched Bundesliga last season. I thought he was... um, I was sure that he would end up in the Premier League. Uh, at that time, he was being linked to Arsenal, as as one is when he's an attacking player. Uh, headed to City uh, along with John Stones. Let's let's talk about Leroy Sané first. Your thoughts on how he might fit into uh, what is again a, a pretty strong attacking midfielder setup there at Man City. Yeah, I like him. Um, I want to say the Champions League, uh, Schalke, Real Madrid. That was kind of the first moment that I really took notice of him. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think he is a talented player. I, th- I think, or I would like to think, that Pep can do something with him. It's another big signing for City. My concern for City will continue to be how are they actually integrating their own youth. Um, I think it's great if you can go out and buy talented youngsters. I think the potential signing of Marlos Moreno... Um, you love so- yourself some Marlos Moreno. <laughs> I think he's the kind of player they're going to try and sign moving forward. Um, a youngster that essentially will not cost them the GDP of a small country um, to attain. Even still, for, for me, it's it's players like Brandon Barker, um, Angelino to a lesser extent, because again, he's not really a, a true City product. I'm talking about the local kind of kids. How do they Pat- come through? Patrick Roberts? Yeah, I mean, again, he was picked from, from Fulham, so it's it's another mm-hmm. one that's that's come from somewhere else. But, I mean, Angus Gunn is, is probably another good example. Um, is how those players get into the team. That's my concern for City at the minute. Mm. Um, not from anything to do with FFP or financials, just more from a, a standpoint of, I think that's the next step for any club that's aspiring to be in that position. Uh, what about John Stones, a player that last year was almost certainly heading to Chelsea, uh, that did not pan out, um, signed a new contract, and now we are sort of in a situation where he's being bid uh, against the figures are on a f- about 55 to 60 million, which is crazy because he had a fairly poor season last season. Uh, he is apparently being looked at as that that uh, titular ball playing defender that Pep likes. Yeah, I, th- I see completely why they're going for him. Um, I think the one thing I would say about his time under Martinez. I think he, he definitely learned how to be uh, ball-playing or, or whichever term you want to apply to it. I'm just never sure to develop much as a defender. Um, mm-hmm. I think playing in a Martinez team will actually do little for anyone wanting to 
improve their defensive attributes. I think you'll become a much better footballer and someone who can actually play with the ball. Um, but whether that improves you in what was a key area for Stones, I'm not so convinced. Um, and I think he will improve a lot from the structure that City provides, um, assuming the deal goes through. But I, I just think, again, he, he's someone that... It's just a mad price, isn't it? That's the thing. I, I'd love to argue against it. Mm. It is a very big price, but then... You know, you can only sell something for as much as it's worth in inverted commas, and a talented young English defender is is in short supply at this precise moment. Absolutely. Uh, we kind of glossed over it, but we did not really talk about it too much last week, and which, which was uh, the Higuain move to Juventus. Uh, another big money move, Chris, um, kind of different from what Juventus has done in previous seasons, and they're getting a lot of stick for it uh, from, from rival fans for the fact that they've signed uh Pjanic as well as uh as you uh, as uh, as uh, Higuain in the same summer uh, thereby facilitating uh, thereby almost ensuring that they'll win their fifth consecutive uh Serie A title but i guess the the i think it is important to remember right that that Juventus themselves went through a huge uh a uh, huge issue after being relegated because of the the scandal, being promoted, and they didn't have a lot of money at first. They went through their own struggles, and and now maybe they whatever they've money they've spent on Higuain is fair enough because they they've built it from the ground up in some ways. Yeah, I think the one thing that I'm kind of tracking with Serie A at the minute is how did Napoli spend that money? Um, oh yeah, I didn't think about that. There is talk that they have all but completed a deal for Milik around 25 million euros. Mm. I think I've, I read it being reported as. That's not the worst piece of business you'll see this summer. Um, I also don't think it's the best. I'm not as yet to be fully convinced on him. I think he is talented, definitely. I don't know if he's 25 million euros worth of talent. Um, so if you assume that that's the kind of player they're going to be going for, I'd be a bit concerned. Um, but then again, if they invest it incredibly shrewdly, they could have a team that could finally challenge Juve for the entirety of the season and not just three quarters of it. Um, but as you said there yourself, that Juve side already. I mean, some I think it was some Juve fan site or something did a small graphic that um, kind of denoted the two potential teams they could put out, two sure. 11s. It's just frighteningly good. The the second one, I think, would even have a decent spell of of winning Serie A. Never mind the the first choice one. <laughs> no, I totally believe that they are really really stacked, and uh, I think probably preseason favorites for Champions League if, if there's such a thing. I th- I think Bayern are very strong, and I, I love me some Carlo Ancelotti, but that Juve side is is something special. Um, so we'll see what happens. Um, other stories. Uh, so, so here's an interesting one. We haven't talked about Middlesbrough too much. We'll talk about the next week when we preview the season. But I love this story. And that is the son of Zinedine, Enzo Zidane, possibly going on loan to Middlesbrough. Um, I've said on this show before that in spite of Martin Odegaard signing for, uh, for Real Madrid last year, I think the biggest talent in that academy is Enzo Zidane. And I would love to watch him play at Middlesbrough this season. Yeah, I, th- I can can see why. I mean, he, I, th- I want to say he came on the other night against. Oh, crikey, who was it? They play. They played someone the other night and got absolutely stuffed. It was like three 0 or something ridiculous like that. Madrid got stuffed in the international cup. Yeah, or the other team did. Okay, yeah, I um, 
Oh, crikey, who was it? This is going to annoy me now. But anyway, they were playing the other night, um, and the second half might have been PSG, actually. Oh, and Chelsea, they they beat Chelsea 3-2. And... Yeah, they beat Chelsea, but then they, they lost the game before that in midweek. Uh, okay. um, and Odegaard and, and a few others came on for the second half. Yeah, you're um, right. PSG beat them 3-1 in Columbus. That's there right. we go. Um, and, and Odegaard actually looked, to digress slightly, actually looked quite decent. Um, yeah. It's a very bold move. I see why it's happening because obviously Karanka has connections to Real Madrid and has mm-hmm. exploited them sort of to a lesser extent in the past to get the odd player now and again. I think it would make a lot of sense for him personally to go out and get some first-team football. Yeah. If he's got long-term ambitions for the Liga, I'm not too sure why he's coming to England. Mm-hmm. But then again, I wonder if he could find a spot on a, the Liga team. Honestly, I haven't seen enough of him to comment. I, I would feel unfair to say he's, he's this or he's that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you're right, it would be a massively interesting thing to watch, if nothing else. Absolutely. Um, I one... just hope no one doesn't ask. I'm just hoping that we don't every week ask him about his dad. <laughs> in the same way that every Solskjaer press conference was followed by, ah, did, did Sir Alex have an influence on this? <laughs> that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good point. Um, I think I think that's a good point in terms of what it means, what it will mean for his development. Um, I don't know. I mean, it might help him to be at a in a different league and maybe away from the pressure of of having played uh, in Spain because everyone in Spain has memories of Zidane and and scoring that incredible uh, bicycle. No, it wasn't a bicycle kick. I, I guess scissor kick uh, in the Champions League final after that cross from Roberto Carlos. So. I guess maybe going away from that shadow would help, but who knows? Maybe English media will constantly pepper him with comparisons as well. So yeah, we'll see what happens if if he does move. Another interesting one was uh, West Ham possibly moving uh, from Ayu from uh, Swansea City. Well, what do you feel about that one? I see why. I mean, he was linked to on Sunderland in January, um, mm-hmm. and with a few moves away, it didn't sound that happy with Swansea. I'm actually a little bit concerned for Swansea going into yeah. um, this season because there's talks that they've agreed a deal to sell uh, Ashley Williams to Everton, and and just the way the squad is coming together, it feels like the kind of situation that we'll look back in a few months and say, "Oh well, the the warning signs were there for Swansea." Mm-hmm. Um, and this is supposed to be the summer where everyone's spending exorbitant amounts of money. And yet, we haven't actually seen them spend anything. Um, they could have had Joe Allen. They they didn't manage to get that done. They don't want Wilfred Boney, by all accounts. They've let Gomis go to, to Marseille. Mm-hmm. I mean, again, it could turn out like Southampton and work out spectacularly for them. Adair has left as well. Mm, and Adair has, has left. So it's The season is really creeping up very quickly, and they don't seem to have a lot done. Um, and that concerns me. Um, and what what about uh, Joe Allen to Stoke City? Uh, a good signing, or 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 perhaps uh, just another somewhat vanity signing for for Mark Hughes? No, I, th- I think I can see why people might think it was a vanity signing. Actually, I think it's quite a good one. I think it's an upgrade on Glenn Whelan, um, and it will push them further to what they want. I don't think he's the kind of player that will contribute in the final third, mm-hmm. but if he provides the protection to the likes of Arnautovic and. Shakiri, then he's doing exactly what I think they missed last season and needed a little bit more of. Um, and then finally, Chris, what we uh, when we were talking about Arsenal, we should have mentioned that Johnny Evans is being linked for a move to Arsenal. Uh, I have seen Johnny Evans have some incredible games in a Man United shirt for, against Arsenal. I've also seen Johnny Evans have some very poor games in a shirt against many teams. Uh, and I wonder 
if uh, if Arsenal are trying to find fill that plug, which is now uh, sorry, plug that hole, which has now been left by uh, the injured Murtasacker, if Johnny Evans is the right player for that. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I feel. See, you're a Man United fan, so I think your opinion counts for a lot more on this. Well, uh, I guess from my my opinion, uh, I think he's. Uh, so here's the thing with Johnny Evans. Sir Alex made Johnny Evans believe that he was one of the best defenders in England, and Johnny mm-hmm. Evans played like one of the best defenders in England during that time. Uh, I'm thinking back to the Champions League final against Chelsea. Uh, that whole season in the, in the uh, we, what we tend to forget is that even though United had uh, broken that that clean sheet record when Van der Sar was in goal. I think he went a thousand minutes without conceding a goal. People give a lot of credit to Rio Ferdinand and Vidic, but the truth is one of those guys was almost always dif- injured during that mm-hmm. run, and it was Johnny Evans who was I think nineteen at the time who was omnipresent in that defense, and he was incredible during that run. He he was definitely the best defender in the league at that time, but th- since then he had an ankle injury. Uh, he had some off-field issues, uh, and I think once Sir Alex left, we we saw uh, really the breakdown of uh, Johnny Evans's confidence and his ability as a player. I think he's had some good games at West Brom, but I also one of my most uh, memorable moments of last season is seeing uh, Jordan Ibe, who who just moved to Bournemouth, just skin Johnny Evans in the penultimate game of the season, uh, and I think. Some of that was because he had been unfairly played at left back by Tony Pulis. But mm. I think it was emblematic of some of the issues with Johnny Evans. One, that he cannot play in a high back, back line. Number two, he can be found uh, uh, out in terms, uh, in terms of concentration. And when you think of the style of, that Arsenal plays, where they're going to hold the ball, hold the ball, uh, and eventually uh, get broken on by, by many teams, you need a player who is fast and has concentration for 90 minutes. And that is my concern with Johnny Evans. So I think it, it, it might be a temporary fix, but I think Arsenal need to sign uh, maybe someone at a, a little more elite level than Johnny Evans in the long term to replace Per Mertesacker. So yeah, we'll see. We'll see how that plays out. So Chris, we'll, we'll be back next week, you, myself, and Karthik, to preview all twenty games, all twenty teams in the Premier League. So it'll be probably a bit longer than usual which is why this is shorter than usual. Uh, but Chris, I want to thank you for joining me again today. And on behalf of everyone here at World Soccer Talk, uh, I bid you to enjoy your Olympic and Community Shield soccer. <laughs>